0: Hi, I'm Eric Voss, and this pre-Avengers Endgame time is getting pretty hard to fill with anything other than hiding in a bunker with no Wi-Fi to avoid all the leaks and spoilers. But I think the best way to prep is a wide-eyed, in-depth rewatch of Avengers Infinity War. Because pretty much every frame of this movie is filled with details, many of which we overlooked the first time. Now, if you haven't already, you should watch my first breakdown for all the references to the comics and other interesting details. But here, I'm gonna go even deeper and explain how Infinity War is a real different movie than what we remember it was. Spoiler warning in case I accidentally predict something that happens in Avengers Endgame, but you know what? No spoiler warning for Infinity War. You have had a year. Okay, Infinity War opens with a foreboding distress call from the Asgardian refugee ship that we saw at the end of Thor Ragnarok. This is the Asgardian refugee vessel, the Statesman. We are under assault. I repeat, we are under assault. And the reason this distress call sounds so distressed is that this is the voice of Kenneth Branagh, Shakespearean trade actor and director of the first Thor movie. This is a until I brought it before, but rewatching this movie, it's interesting how this movie bookends with another distress call from another director, director Nick Fury, with him getting a line perfectly suited for the actor. Motha... It was gonna be Flerkin. On the ship, Ebony Maw of Thanos' Black Order steps over the bodies of the Asgardians, but it was actually confirmed after this release that some of the Asgardians did escape this massacre, including Valkyrie. Then we meet the central character of Infinity War, Thanos. The writers and the directors have said that the only way to structure a story with over 20 characters was to make the villain the real protagonist. Now, that doesn't make Thanos the hero. Looking at you, Thanos did nothing wrong, groupies. It just means that he is a character with the most clearly defined goal. Josh Brolin based his performance on Marlon Brando's Colonel Kurtz character from Apocalypse Now, who is another iconic, bald, warmonger too hungry for genocide. At 29 minutes, Thanos has the most screen time in Infinity War, followed by Gamora at 19 and and a half, Tony Stark at 18, Doctor Strange at, well, millions of years technically speaking, and Thor at 14 and a half minutes. So Thor has exactly half the amount of screen time that Thanos did. And here, he's about half his size. You actually don't even initially notice that the limp ragdoll at Thanos' feet is the God of Thunder. By opening this film with these two Theoros, Infinity War establishes Thanos' and Thor's opposing arcs as the most critical. And if we consider Thanos to be the protagonist, that would make Thor the story's antagonist. Now, to be clear, Thor and the rest of the Avengers are definitely the good guys here. But throughout this rewatch, I'm gonna point out some evidence to make the case that Thor is the structural villain of this story. I mean, he does only have one eye here, guys. Thanos reveals his Infinity Gauntlet, closing his fist to power up the Power Stone. Throughout this movie, notice that Thanos can only use the stones when his fist is clenched. It's a key detail when they try to physically overpower him later. Thanos gaining the power stone from Xandar was actually removed from an early draft of the script. However, there was some speculation from the Endgame trailer footage that the second movie would show us the ruins of Xandar. Loki presents the Tesseract containing the Space Stone, which he grabbed from Odin's vault before Asgard was destroyed in Ragnarok. The timeline of the story immediately after Ragnarok suggests that it was actually Asgard's destruction and the death of Odin as protector of the Nine Realms that opened the door for Thanos to finally make his move. One of my favorite theories is that Thanos could actually have been following in Odin's footsteps, with Odin possibly having similarly attempted his own Infinity Conquest and paid a costly price for it, but more on that later. Loki tells Thanos, we have a Hulk. A callback to Tony Stark's words to Loki in the first Avengers movie, and at least in this big brawl between the Crayola meatheads. Thanos actually doesn't use the Power Stone during this fight, a subtle way of establishing his ferocity as a Genghis Khan-style conqueror, who don't need no magic. Their fight plays out like a boxing match, with Hulk winning round one, initially overpowering Thanos, and Hulk smashing him into a wall, squeezing out a grumpy grunt from Grimace. But ding! Round two, Thanos realizes he has has sharper wits than this dumb-dumb, and he knocks out Hulk's airflow with a jab to the throat, and then one to his ribs, leading to a KO. Now, sure, it's not totally comic accurate for Hulk to ever lose a fight. Like, he's supposed to just grow bigger and angrier. Some have even used this as grounds for a conspiracy, saying that this could actually be Loki masquerading as Hulk, with Loki faking his death, and disguising himself as Bruce Banner for the rest of the movie. People have also pointed to some debris floating outside when Loki actually gets his neck snapped. Some debris that looks like the a real Loki wearing his helmet, and others have pointed out that it's weird that Bruce Banner remembers memories from when Hulk was in control, instead of blacking out like he has in the past. Well, I'll actually give you that one. But really, I think the filmmakers wanted Hulk's performance anxiety to be the next step of the character's evolution across the MCU films to this point. From an animalistic rage monster, to a lonely Frankenstein's monster, to a cocky gladiator, and now, to a more emotional entity with a more nuanced relationship with Bruce Banner. As Ebony Ma presents Thanos the space stone. He says, My humble personage bows before your grandeur. Humble person. Yeah, somebody wants a raise. Maw's goofy line here is actually a direct quote from the character Mephisto in the Infinity Gauntlet comics title page. Of the Black Order members, Ebony Maw has the most defined personality. Despite that, in the recent Marvel comics, all of them get more background. For example, Corvus Glaive and Proxima Midnight are actually married. Not much chemistry, though. They're going through a lot. And Cull Obsidian's most specific trait is that, a flashy sash that hangs around his waist. Many people actually thought that it looked like Captain Marvel. Marvel's color scheme, but it's actually orange and purple, signifying nothing. his character is a bit more fun to watch. His character is a mix of Mephisto, as Thanos' devious right-hand man from the comics, with just a splash of that uh, nerdy Nazi in Raiders of the Lost Ark. As Thanos takes a space stone, he removes his helmet and his armor. Despite a few more fights ahead of him, for Thanos, the hard part is over. The remaining steps of this stone quest is more of a spiritual journey for him. And from this point forward, Thanos never diverts from his goal to give in to his more violent tendencies. He actually fulfills all of his He spares Thor in exchange for the Space Stone, he spares Nebula in exchange for Gamora telling him where the Soul Stone was, and he spares Tony Stark in exchange for the Time Stone. He's still a murderous piece of crap, but he definitely keeps his word. Meanwhile, Thor's journey here can be seen as a classic villain origin, grieving over his dead brother, swearing selfish vengeance! Kind of like Jeremy Irons in Die Hard with a Vengeance, swearing death to non-Purple Bruce Willis to avenge his dead brother Hans Gruber. I mean, Sam Jackson was in both movies. Okay, I know all of that was just for the opening sequence, but don't worry, I'm gonna move fast through the rest of this. Like, I know Bruce Banner crash-landing the Sanctum Santorum was a nod to Silver Surfer doing it in the comics. but I. I already covered that in my first breakdown, so if I skip over future comic references throughout this, I didn't miss it. I just covered it in another video. Okay, Tony Stark and Pepper Potts jog in the park with Tony talking about a vivid dream he had about them having a kid named Morgan. His confusion of dreams and reality should remind us of his nightmare vision back in Age of Ultron. The dream that launched his paranoia over Thanos, leading him to try to weaponize an Infinity Stone when he probably should have just sought to destroy it. Actually, later, while being debriefed in the Sanctum, Stark nods and says, This is it. It's a subtle callback to the moment in Ultron when he first spoke what would eventually be the title of the final film. We're the Avengers. We could bust up arms dealers out of a live long day. But that up there? That's the end game. Now, when Stark and Strange start talking about the Time Stone, things get really interesting. Strange says, This stone may be our best chance that we have against Thanos. Stark says, Not if we do our jobs. What is your job aside from making balloon animals? And Strange says, Protecting your reality, douchebag. Yeah, nerd burn. So in this moment, it sounds like Doc Strange is already brainstorming strategies for how to use the time stone against Thanos. Later in the movie, Strange uses the time stone to look into future timelines. But we have speculated many other possible secret uses, like putting everyone inside a time loop that will reset and give them infinite shots at finding a victory path. And by saying protecting your reality, douchebag, Strange is calling Tony Stark a douchebag. He's also acknowledging a vast multiverse of parallel realities, perhaps hinting at another way to defeat Thanos splitting into alternate timelines. And actually, after this movie came out, Ant-Man and the Wasp also shed light on the existence of multiple parallel realities through the quantum realm in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Peter Parker sees the calamity from his school bus, the hairs on his arms shoot up, a representation of Peter's Spidey-sense. Something that we didn't really see him use in Spider-Man Homecoming, but he does have it. Because he definitely used it in the airport battle in Civil War. Later, Peter tells Stark that he came from a field trip, and to be clear, that field trip is not the Euro trip from Spider-Man Far From Home, that movie is a sequel, not a secret prequel set before Infinity War. Stark shows off his new nanotech armor based on his Bleeding Edge armor from the comics. Stark takes off his Friday-linked sunglasses as the armor flows over his body, and the sunglasses just get absorbed into the armor on his fingers. So really, Stark just took off his sunglasses as a kind of intimidation tactic. The Guardians of the Galaxy respond to the Kenneth on distress call, and James Gunn clarified that the ship they're on here is called the Benatar, since the Milano was destroyed in Guardians Volume 2. Thor's arrival here once again paints him in a sort of villainous light. He frightens them by slamming into their ship, and they all scream again when his eye pops open! And then once inside the ship, he goes around ranting about getting a new powerful weapon to go kill someone! I mean, if we didn't know him, he'd be kind of like running into Michael Myers with your RV, and then freaking out when Michael starts looking for a bigger knife to go kill Laurie Strode. He'd be like, Dude, chill! It's also interesting to rewatch Rocket in this moment, because notice how he joins Thor in Nidavellir instead of joining the other Guardians to go confront Thanos directly. And then as you watch this movie, Rocket is the one major hero not to make direct contact with Thanos. All the rest take swings at Thanos either on Titan or in that final charge on Wakanda, but Rocket? Nowhere to be seen. Perhaps Rocket's avoidance tells us something about its relationship with Thanos. Like, we never really knew the secret origin of Rocket's cybernetic enhancements, and one theory is that he could be a runaway child of Thanos. And That's why he was kind of hiding from Thanos throughout this movie. Vision and Wanda Maximoff, stars of the upcoming, unfortunately titled Disney Plus series WandaVision, respond to a warning from the Mind Stone we don't really see the Mind Stone's power manifest in any specific way in this movie, but we do know it has some cosmic intelligence. It gives people the power of mind control, but it also has a kind of a dark mind of its own. There's actually a theory that the Mind Stone itself is behind all of this drama, playing a long game to gradually manipulate the Avengers to turn on each other, weaken them all from the inside, and expose them to a worthy force to reunite it with the others of its kind. One could say the same thing about our genes using our bodies as flesh puppets to replicate themselves free will is a myth nobody exists on purpose nobody belongs anywhere everybody's going to die come watch tv Captain America helps Vision and Wanda, now bearded, wearing a Civil War suit, but it's desaturated, with all of its patriotic insignia torn off. Cap's big entrance here almost wasn't in the movie. He was originally going to make his surprise appearance during the Battle of Wakanda, kind of like Thor's big entrance. But they moved Cap earlier, because even though Endgame is a bigger story for his character, he couldn't be a no-show in the first half of Infinity War. A flashback reveals the decimation of Gamora's home race, the Ziho Beret by Thanos, the Black Order, and the Chitari, and it's interesting to witness an example of another alien race being slaughtered by an attack that the Avengers on Earth overcame, showing how awful our fate could have been, and a tease of the awful fate to come. In an early pre-release scene of Endgame, Captain Marvel snapped at Rhodey that the reason she didn't help the Avengers in past battles is that she was busy fighting to save other planets across the galaxy, just like this one. The fact that the Avengers defeated the Chitari then, is an especially big deal. There was a long deadly warpath from planet to planet, and they put a stop to it. Now, Infinity War's two best pop culture easter eggs show up when the Guardians sneak into the collector's vault and nowhere. Gamora passes a tank containing this blue man, Tobias Funke, from Arrested Development, the sitcom that the Russo brothers used to work on. They also snuck in a Bluth Company stair truck in the background of the airport in Civil War. And the other one, when Thanos interrogates Benicio Del Toro as a collector, he asks where is the stone? He's actually doing an exact impression of Del Toro's character in the movie Snatch. The jewel the Frankie Fourfingers. Thanos reveals he actually already has the reality stone this is all a projected reality over the ruins of nowhere. And even though Thanos uses the reality stone to turn Drax into blocks and mantis into ribbons and Quill's blaster bolt into bubbles, why doesn't he use it more in later battles? The filmmakers made sure to show Thanos using each stone at least once in the scene after his acquisition of that stone. The way I played the crap out of this toy infinity gauntlet the first night I got it and then I, you know, scaled it down to like two hours a day after that. In Thanos' case, he could use the Reality Stone to toy with the heroes or the movie, like pop their eyes out on springs or turn them inside out or make their faces butts. But this version of Thanos has his eyes on the prize. He's not evil. He's just all business, and that business is itself evil enough. In Avengers HQ, Rhodey hollow chats with Secretary Ross, and one of Ross' aides is actually a cameo by one of the movie's screenwriters, Stephen McFeely. A deleted scene from the park with Happy Hogan. Actually, glued a cameo by one of the directors, Joe Russo, as Bert the paparazzo. Natasha mentions Clint Barton and Scott Lang are under house arrest following the events of Civil War. Because they both have families, it's kind of hard for them to go on the run. In Ant-Man and the Wasp, Scott is revealed to have an ankle bracelet monitor, and actually endgame scenes show Hawkeye with a similar one. The team debates removing the Mind Stone from Vision and destroying it, and Vision's willing to sacrifice himself, but Cap responds, we don't trade lives. This line connects to the theme of sacrifice at the heart of the story. These Avengers have proven they're willing to sacrifice their own lives, but are they willing to sacrifice the lives of others? Thanos' stronger will to follow through in this regard makes him the champion of this particular test. On the Q-ship, Stark and Peter save Strange using an alien style suck him suck-em-out-through-the-airlock move. Ebony Maw releases the subtlest... Wilhelm scream when he shoots out. And after some debate, Strange makes a pretty dark assurance to Stark. If it comes to saving you, or the kid, or the Time Stone, I will not hesitate to let either of you die. Yeah, way to return the favor for them saving your life, Doc! Strange's words foreshadow the final sacrifice of this movie. In Strange's eyes, the end game. The final phase of a game of chess in which all pieces on the board, from the pawns to your queen, are on the chopping block if it leads you to a checkmate. In the throne room of the Sanctuary 2, Thanos outlines his philosophy to Gamora. This universe is finite. Its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, it ceases to exist. So in the comics, Thanos was a lot more two-dimensional. Literally, he's, he's on a page. But also, the character's just super over the top. The only reason he wants to kill half the life in the universe is just to impress Mistress Death, whom he's in love with. But in this movie, Thanos' worldview is a lot more complex. It actually comes from the Malthusianism theory, which proposes that overpopulation is the primary source of conflicts and poverty around the world, and that deadly natural disasters like pandemics and tsunamis are ultimately good for humanity. Yeah, I bet Malthus is a real hit at parties. Thanos gets a location of the Soul Stone out of Gamora by torturing old Waste parts herself Nebula, and he uses both the Space Stone and the Power Stone at the same time to torture her. I assume the Space Stone is is to spatially pull her parts apart from each other, and the Power Stone is to keep it all bound together, kind of squeezing his daughter between two gargantuan sources of pain. By the way, double the pain he delivered to Thor's temple with just the Power Stone. I've said it once, I'll say it again. Father of the Year. In the Valir, Thor, Rocket, and Groot meet Eitri, Peter Dinklage, whose hands Thanos cut off, leaving him with these crude Uru hands that he made for himself. According to concept art, the original design was for Eitri to have rounded off Uru stumps and for Groot to climb on his back and extend his branches, forming Eitri's new hands to help him forge Thor's new weapon. Actually, even earlier concept art showed Thor descending into a giant cavern and finding Stormbreaker, nestled in a vine-covered hole that looked like like the corpse of a giant creature, maybe a dragon? Instead, the filmmakers wanted Thor to have to work a lot harder to gain this weapon, comparing his quest to the labors of Hercules, the 12 tasks that that mythological hero had to complete as penance for his past mistakes. Groot does end up playing a crucial role in the formation of Stormbreaker, providing one of his arms as a handle, and some have asked, well, since Groot can regenerate from mere twigs of himself, after he faded in the snap, shouldn't he be able to regenerate from the Stormbreaker handle, or if not, shouldn't the dust away too? It's a good question but from what I can tell from other examples of people who dust, Thanos' snap seems to affect the parts of you that are like part of your identity in that moment. So clothes, accessories, weapons, Bucky's arm, they all fade with the person but not Fury's pager, which she had just picked up, and not Groot's arm which ceased to be part of his identity the moment it became part of something new. A new magical weapon, Stormbreaker. And along the bladed edge of Stormbreaker, there are actually some Asgardian runes that translate to Loose the dogs of war, a popular phrase that dates back to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which includes the famous phrase, Cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. On Vormir, Thanos and Gamora encounter Whoa w- what? Red Skull. After fooshing away from the Tesseract in Captain America the First Avenger, he's now a stone keeper to the soul stone. He greets Thanos as son of Alas. Alars is actually the name of Thanos' father, an Eternal, husband to Sui-san, and son of Kronos, the Eternal who became the cosmic embodiment of time itself. I know, comics. Maybe they're mentioning Alars here to get another way time could be meddled with in the future of the MCU. Thanos, of course, sacrifices Gamora, which reminds me of that whole Odin parallel I brought up earlier. What if Odin once faced this test as well, sacrificing his daughter- Hella, we know it's banished to another dimension and came back when he died. You could see how Odin would have never forgiven himself and then decided to scatter the stones across the universe. Perhaps the way Odin was haunted by his daughter, so too, May Thanos by his. On Titan, the Avengers meet the Guardians and Doctor Strange looks ahead in time at 14,605,000 possible futures, saying they only win in one of those timelines. Over the past year, we have speculated a lot over what the exact conditions of Doctor Strange's one victorious timeline plan could be. Be sure to check out all the videos on the subject, especially the most recent one about the time loop theory. Their battle with Thanos features a number of subtle visual details, especially in the way Thanos uses interesting combinations of stones. Like, he uses the soul stone twice in this sequence, once in combination with the power stone to send a shockwave that Quill Drax and Nebula, and maybe the soul of Gamora inside that orange stone reduced the impact of the power stone in order to spare her friends and a waste of parts that she knows. And again, while he fights Doctor Strange, Thanos uses the soul stone to identify which of the strange duplicates really possess the soul. Thanos also uses the reality stone against Strange in combination with the space stone in order to pull him in and choke him, and the reality stone warps the ground beneath Strange's feet similar to the way Strange and the Ancient One would bend and fold city blocks in their battles. Speaking of all this magic, the duel between Thanos and Strange is filled with interesting moves. Strange casts a spell at Thanos to try to trap him in the mirror dimension, but Thanos shatters it and uses the space stone to swirl the shards into a black hole that sucks in all nearby magic before Strange turns into butterflies. According to the concept art, this wizard duel was going to get even drippier. Strange was going to touch Thanos' forehead to put him in a trance similar to how the Ancient One used bad touch on Stephen Strange and spun him off through various realities. Strange and Thanos were then going to battle in some interdimensional tunnel with shards of the mirror dimension surrounding them. Supposedly, Strange's strategy was to use the mysteries of the multiverse to overstimulate and disorient Thanos. Remember, Thanos now equals Strange in magical abilities. Ability. And the concept art also showed Thanos knocking astral projections of each of these Avengers out of their bodies, apparently, depowering them because they're not in armor. This battle ends by Thanos taking everyone out and Strange surrenders the time stone. Strange summons it from out of thin air, and it glows as it floats over to Thanos. Usually, the stones only glow if they are in the process of being used, suggesting that Strange could be secretly rigging the time stone with a spell, perhaps using it to establish a time loop, setting in and out points. Or maybe he has projected the stone into the future so that some future Avengers could use it to meddle with timelines, and he's summoning it back into the present here. I can hear the voices of those of you in the future of the real world who have already seen Endgame watching this video and being like, eh, no. On Earth, and Wakanda, the battle begins with Cap, Natasha, and Black Panther facing the Black Order, with T'Challa promising, Thanos will have nothing but dust and blood. Ironically, dust and blood of billions is exactly what Thanos wants. There are a lot of fun details in this battle, go check out my other breakdowns for all that stuff. But right now, it's interesting to rewatch Shuri in this sequence. You could see her disconnecting a few of Vision's neuron stems, suggesting that perhaps enough of his consciousness was downloaded to her server before he died, maybe? And in Vision's battle with Corvus Glaive, Actually, ends up saving Cap by impaling Corvus with his own glaive, repeating the exact same move that Corvus used on him way back in the first act in Scotland. Bruce Banner also uses a callback to Act 1 to defeat Cole Obsidian. Banner was there the moment Wong's portal closing chopped off Cole's hand. Banner played Hacky Sack with it. So Banner knows that Cole's new prosthetic hand is still new, awkward on him. Probably clumsy enough so that when Banner shoves the Hulkbuster gauntlet on it, Cole won't be able to control it before he goes boom. Thor arrives mid battle using the Bifrost, suggesting that Stormbreaker is now a ridiculously powerful object. Yes, this is an Arthurian hero moment for Thor, and seeing this definitely makes me want to spike a diner mug. But something about it just feels a little easy for Thor, yeah? Kinda like Darth Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin gaining the superpower of the Death Star. Or Belloc and nerdy Nazi getting the Ark of the Covenant and Raiders. Or Voldemort getting the Elder Wand. Like all these villains, Thor, for this thought experiment, Gets a sole reward for something that's more of a group effort or a groot effort. Yes, he did have to overcook himself in the universe's worst tanning bed, but you know what? He came out of it unscarred. Compare that to the costs Thanos had to pay. That dude had to spend years building multiple armies, conquering several planets, defeating powerful Asgardians and the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy, breaking his own heart to sacrifice the daughter he loves, and literally having his heart broken when Stormbreaker launches inside. Of it. All of it leaves them pretty severely wounded in those final shots. So his snap happens in this intimate moment between Thanos and Thor, their kissing distance. And the fact that it's Thanos who was successful, not Thor, makes this all Thanos' movie, according to the directors. But actually, this moment was originally conceived to be more crowded. Concept art showed the Earth Avengers dogpiling on Thanos the same way that the other group did on Titan. But seeing it all from just Thor's eyes alone makes this loss even more shocking. And in a way, a bit satisfying. He screams like a guy on the Death Star who's seen a proton torpedo go down the reactor shaft. Or nerdy Nazi's face melting off. No! After the snap, Thanos briefly reunites with Gamora inside the Soul Stone. Walking on this body of water, the VFX artists actually revealed that one idea was for this water to be an ocean of blood. The blood of Thanos' victims. But instead, the artists decided the most shocking visual would be monochromatic dust and ash as half the universe's population fades. Each victim's final moments reflects their emotional state. Bucky's last word is Steve? Before the soldier collapses, Wanda, already feeling dead inside for losing vision, throws her head back in a release, welcoming death. And with Groot, according to James Gunn, his final I am Groot, directed at Rocket, translates to Dad. And on Titan, Peter Parker's dusting is more drawn out, because his spidey sense alerts him that death was imminent. And it makes him not feel so good. The movie ends with all of the main characters, Cap, stark even thanos all knocked on their butts it doesn't really feel like a victory for anybody more like a double knockout and the irony for cap is as rock bottom as things appear to be for him in this moment Endgame appears to make the situation even worse for Cap and his buds. Now, again, this rewatch just covered the new stuff, so for other details that we caught in our first pass, check out my big Easter egg breakdown from last year, the post credit scene breakdown. Really, any of the multitude of Avengers theories, tweet-downs, it's been a fun year. Comment down below with a new thing that you learned from rewatching Infinity War, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at eavoss. And if you live in Los Angeles, check out my live comedy show, Darkest Timeline Comedy, on May 3rd and every first Friday of the month thereafter. The last show sold out, so you gotta get your tickets early. Thank you for watching, and if any of you jerks send me spoilers and leaks for endgame, you know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, just wanna these.